Thanks for the readings, Anne. Uh, friends, great to see you this morning. Um, now, first of all, if you'd like an outline, um, that's got the headings that will flash up um, on the screen. Um, you can grab one. Actually, put your hand up, and I think Mandy's might hand them out too, if you'd like one of those. Um, and I want to start with this question of what is it that you want for your loved ones? Um, we don't have long, but ponder that in your minds right now. What, what is it that you really want for, let's say, your friends, for your family? What would an awesome future look like for them? What would that be? Well, today, we're going to listen in as Jacob speaks his final words to his family. And so we'll hear about the future that he wants for his loved ones. Now, of course, as we do this, it's, it's really just days since the death of Queen Elizabeth. And it might be hard for us to not think about what she might have been thinking on her deathbed. <clears throat> what she might have wanted for her loved ones, what she might have longed for for those she ruled. But this morning, I want us to reflect on our hopes, on our dreams, on our desires, what it is that we want for those that we love. And we'll ask ourselves this question, do we have the right perspective on life? Do our hopes, do our dreams, do they make sense in light of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the beautiful future that he has in store for all those who belong to him? And so let's turn to Jacob. And with the start of chapter 48, we do detect a definite change. Jacob is now very much on his deathbed. And that's flagged for us in a couple of ways. There's this deliberate repetition of the word dwelling. So back in Genesis 47, 27, Jacob was said to be dwelling in Goshen. But here in 48 verse 2, He's now dwelling. Where's he dwelling? Well, he's dwelling in his bed. That repetition tells us that Jacob, he's not doing that well at this point. But even more explicitly, when Joseph's two sons arrive, we're told that Jacob needs to rally his strength just to sit up in bed. And so Jacob, he is not long for this world. And so what does Jacob say to his family? What are his Parting words, what, what wisdom has he gained from his 147 years? What is it, this, this number one thing that he wants for his loved ones? Let's ponder it for a moment. What might he say? What are his options? Might he simply tell his kids to enjoy the affluence of Egypt? That's possible, right? I mean, at this point, Jacob and his 12 sons, that's where they are. They're in Egypt. And not only is Egypt a very prosperous nation, but his family, they are at the top of Egyptian society. And that's because, you know, under Pharaoh, Jacob's youngest son, Joseph, he's been made the ruler. He's running the place. And because Joseph is doing well, then Jacob and the rest of his family are doing well. As we heard last week, again from Genesis 
chapter 47, verse 27. The Israelites settled in Egypt, in the region of Goshen. There they acquired property there and, and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. And so what might Jacob say? Might he be rather pleased with how things have turned out? Might he be thinking, this is mission accomplished? Now, I actually think we could kind of imagine him saying that. Because earlier in Genesis, you know, Jacob was the one who lied, who cheated, who, who tricked, who did whatever he could to try and secure whatever he could to secure material blessing. And so you could imagine a younger Jacob saying that. But actually, we're not dealing with the younger Jacob anymore, are we? Throughout this series, we've witnessed a slow, I think we can say a very slow transformation from the liar, the trickster, the cheater, from the one who so wanted from this world as much food and clothing and blessing as he could possibly get his hands on, from the one who even tried to bargain with God, we've witnessed a transformation. And that change is just so evident in his final words. Because he doesn't say, mission accomplished. He doesn't say, my work here is done. He kind of says the opposite. Now, he he most clearly articulates what he wants to pass on down in verse 21 when he says to Joseph, to the man running Egypt, he says, God will be with you and will take you back to the land of your fathers. Which is to say that Jacob doesn't tell Joseph to keep making his home in Egypt. He doesn't say, enjoy it here, love it, live it up. What he actually says is, do not get comfortable. Be ready to leave it all behind. How do we explain that dramatic change that we're seeing so clearly in Jacob? That dramatic change in his values, in his priorities, in in what he thinks will be a great future. Well, let's listen in as he tells his son, Joseph, why Joseph must be ready to leave behind all that Egyptian society offers. From verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. And so why must Joseph be ready to leave? It's because the promises that were first given to Abraham, which were then passed down through Isaac, passed down to Jacob himself, These promises to become fruitful and multiply. Not in Egypt. It's the land of Canaan. And that's the key, right? That's why Joseph must be ready to leave Egypt, ready to go the the moment that God gives the word. It's because the future that God had promised his people, it wasn't in Egypt. It was in Canaan. And so are we seeing the transformation 
in Jacob. How he now fully trusts the promises of God. So the one who who bargained with God, who didn't fully trust God, that very same Jacob, now he tells his family to leave it all behind, to leave the prosperity, to leave the protection, to leave the status, the, the comforts of Egypt, and to be ready to start again in Canaan whenever God gives the word. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that God doesn't tell Jacob's family to leave Egypt for another 400 years. But here we are seeing Jacob's transformation is is kind of complete, right? And it's monumental. He trusts that God will fulfill his promises. And so while it's been a long time coming, uh, Jacob's story, which we've been following throughout this series, it's actually a good news story. It's a transformation story and it is a great encouragement to us because actually this could be our story because we too can embrace the future that God has promised to all those who belong to him. And when we do that, when we take hold of that future, when we long for that future, then the decisions that we make, they will change. We'll stop pursuing the the false hopes and dreams that our world wants us to own. The false promises that says the education, for example, can secure our future. Or the false promise that tells us that money and and lots of it is all you need. Jacob, whom we've been following this whole series, he's now a great example for us and should cause us to reflect on the trajectory of our lives. What is number one for you? Do you trust the promises of God and do your life decisions reflect that? We might think, well, when you're on your deathbed, what is the one thing that you'll say to your loved ones? Well, how does Joseph take the news? How does he respond to this call to be ready to leave behind all that he's established in Egypt? It's a big deal, isn't it? Joseph is running Egypt. He's powerful. He's wealthy. From a worldly perspective, this guy, he has it all. But to leave, well, actually, that doesn't just impact him. That's got big implications for his kids, too. Think about Manasseh and Ephraim. Both of them, they were actually born in Egypt. All they have known is in Egypt. They may even consider themselves to be Egyptian. And given who their dad is, you could expect that these two would grow up in Egypt to be powerful, influential people. That the the future for these kids would be incredibly bright because that's what tends to happen when you've got the right connections, the the best schooling, the best of everything, especially at that time, you tend to do pretty well. And so to decide that whenever God gives the word, you'll pack it all up and leave Egypt behind, that is a big call, not just 
for Joseph, but for what it means for his kids. And so what will Joseph do? Will he agree? Will he commit, not just himself, but also his kids to leaving Egypt? Pulling his kids out of that culture, away from such privilege, from the affluent lifestyle, the great schools, the influential careers, leaving that all behind and instead going to the underdeveloped, the far less sophisticated land of Canaan. All because of the promises of God. And so will Joseph do it? Now again, we kind of know that Joseph won't actually need to make that exact decision because God's not going to call his people to leave Egypt for another 400 years. But actually, as we come to verses 5 to 7, Jacob puts Joseph very much on the spot. He actually forces Joseph to make a decision there and then. How so? Well, Jacob declares his intention to adopt Joseph's kids. That's a surprise, isn't it? Let's pick it up from verse 5. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. So, Jacob's intention to adopt his own grandkids, well, this adds tension, right? This, this ratches it up a whole notch. It means that Joseph has a decision to make, a decision that will have a dramatic effect on the future of his two kids. Because if Jacob is allowed to adopt them, then, of course, Manasseh and Ephraim would have the same legal status For example, as Reuben and Simeon, the first two sons born to Jacob, such that uh, Manasseh and Ephraim would also have their own share of the land in Canaan. You think, well, why would that be significant? Why would letting Jacob adopt Joseph's kids be such a big deal? Well, actually, I think there's two reasons. The first is that if he allowed it, Jacob would be declaring that the the future, sorry, Joseph would be declaring that the future for his two sons and their descendants would be in Canaan, not Egypt, because they'd have land specifically allocated to each of them. But actually, I think this proposed adoption would have another significance too. It would mean that the kids, they would identify as Israelites that as they grew up in Egypt, they would know that they were foreigners in a country that was not theirs. And presumably that would have social implications. As one biblical scholar noted, it's interesting that we don't read of any of Joseph's descendants holding any power in Egypt. That's an argument from silence, but it suggests that to allow this adoption to happen would in effect mean cutting his children off from following in Joseph's own footsteps, following, um, no no longer following into the upper echelons of Egyptian society. And it it actually reminded me of the the second reading we had that Anne brought to us from Hebrews 11. Speaks of Moses making this same decision for himself. That verse said, by faith Moses, when he'd grown up, 
refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. And so will Joseph agree to this adoption? Does he trust the promises of God, not just for himself, but for his children too? Well, the adoption process starts in verse 8. Now, what some scholars have suggested is that here we have a record of a formal adoption process. And so on that reading, it would begin in verse 8 with Jacob's question, who are these? Now, that's, um, I mean, otherwise curious question, since the kids seem to have been there all along. That question is said to function in much the same way as the question, well, who gives this woman to be married to this man? The same way that functions in a modern marriage ceremony. It's kind of just part of the process. That's why it's been included. And on that reading, the adoption process is then finalised in verse 12 as Joseph bows down before Jacob. Now, look, I'm not sure if what we have here is a record of a formal adoption process or not, but regardless of that, what is clear is that Joseph agrees to the adoption. And so let me suggest that here we have another excellent model of one who trusts in the promises of God. And actually, we, we see Joseph's trust again when he allows Jacob to bless Ephraim as the firstborn, rather than Manasseh, who was chronologically first. See, in verse 18 there, Joseph does query it, doesn't he? But we read of Jacob's response in verse 19. He says, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. And so it's not a mistake. Jacob knows who was born first, but he does it anyway. Why? Why do this? Why change the birth order? Well, we've seen this a few times in Genesis, haven't we? It's to show that ultimately it is God who determines the future. But specifically in this passage, it highlights the trust, I think, of both Jacob and Joseph. First, Jacob in that he trusted God when God told him to reverse the birth order. And again, Hebrews reflects on this. Hebrews 11.21, it says that by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. But second, we again see the trust of Joseph, who after being a little bit upset, ends up trusting that this is God's will. All right, well, let's wrap up this section on Joseph. By simply noting that he is, it is an encouraging story. Now, it was a couple of weeks ago now, but um, one of my kids told me that previously he'd considered that King David was sort of the, the high point of God's people in the Old Testament. Now, but now he thinks it's actually Joseph. And actually, I think he's right. Um, last week, Dave actually explored that a bit for us last week, actually, so I'm not going to rehearse that again. But, but how impressive is Joseph? What an incredible example he is for us. And again, as we we think about him and and what we've been hearing so far this morning, I think it does challenge us to reflect on our priorities in our lives. Not just regarding what we want for ourselves, the future that we want for, for us, but what we want for our loved ones. Because this chapter, it 
It forces us to consider whether the decisions that we make, are they helping others? To live a life in in full dependence on the promises of God. Let's think about this a little bit harder. If we've got children, what does that mean for us? Well, do they see the promises of God and how they impact the decisions that you make? Do your kids see that? Do you talk to them about why you've chosen to do the things that you've chosen to do? Why go to church? Do they know why you're here? Why go to growth group? Why give money to church? Why, why, why? Do your kids know why? Why you love those hard to love? Why you are persistent in prayer? Why you read your Bible? About why you want them to read their Bible, about why you want them to go to church, to go to youth group, to go to their their groups on Sunday afternoons. Do they know why? Do they see how the promises of God shape what you do and what you want for them? Well, as we move into chapter 49, there's actually another thing that we can do to help others to take hold of and live in light of the promises of God, and that is to help them to see how the promises are fulfilled. Uh, That is what I think Jacob does in this chapter, as he says in verse 1, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. And so here Jacob, he's talking about the future, talking about what God will do in partial fulfilment of his promises. And so let's take a look at this. What does he say? Well, the first thing he says is that all 12 of the sons of Jacob, they'll be part of God's people. So that's worth noting because this is actually a bit of a change. So far, the promises have been passed down from one individual to another. So from Abraham, Isaac to Jacob. But now the promises are flowing to all 12 sons. So that these 12 will comprise the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes that comprise God's people. And so together, these brothers will be given the land. And together, these brothers will be made into a a great nation. And so that's one way that Jacob flags for his sons how God's promises will be partially fulfilled in the coming years. But Jacob also notes a distinction amongst the sons, amongst these different tribes. Consider Reuben's tribe, for example, in verses 3 and 4. Well, actually, their future is not said to be particularly amazing, is it? And actually, if you sort of glance through, you'll see it's the same for the tribes of Simeon and Levi in verses 5 to 7. Their their future is not so bright either. However, there, there is one son who is said to have an incredible future, and that's Judah. And what becomes obvious as we read about the future of his tribe is that, is that God is going to do something special through one of his descendants. We're told that God will raise up a ruler, a king, from his tribe. Let's pick that up from verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion, he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, 
until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Okay, so a ruler, a king, will come from Judah's line. Now, let me suggest this shouldn't surprise us. There's actually been a few hints along the way throughout Genesis that from within God's people, a king will emerge. We can actually trace it back from this passage. So we're we're sort of tracing the the references that we've just read and how they've popped up earlier. Um, The reference to ruling his brothers, we just read that, your father's sons will bow down to you. That's the first I want to point out. The second reference from the passage we just read was to ruling the nations. It said, the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now, both of those, they can be traced back to Isaac. When Isaac passed the blessing on to Jacob, he mentioned both of those, how there would be one who would rule over his brothers, but also rule over the nations. Let me read that again from Genesis 27, verse 29. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Okay, what are we hearing here? Well, back in Genesis 27, we've got these expectations of the one who would come, not just ruling over his brothers, but over the whole world. But actually in Genesis 27, that section ended, it actually, the way it ended pushed us back even earlier in Genesis, when it will promise the one who would come, that those who curse you would be cursed and those who bless you would be blessed. Well, that's actually from Genesis chapter 12, which is really much to to say that within Genesis, we've got these hints that these promises actually given in Genesis 12, we're actually looking forward all along to a coming king. And now here in our passage this morning, that promise is made explicit. From the tribe of Judah, God will raise up this king who would rule this world. And so this is a massive moment in the biblical storyline. Jacob has revealed how God will fulfill his promises and right at the centre of it is this king who will reign. And actually, that's what we've seen, haven't we? God did raise up a ruler from the tribe of Judah, King David. He was the first, but he was only ever intended to point towards the ultimate fulfilment in the Lord Jesus. And so again, this is a key moment in the biblical storyline. But as we sort of think about that, one question that might be lurking in the back of our minds is, well, why Judah? Why might God have chosen to raise up his king from that tribe? Well, actually, it does make sense. Uh, We might have thought that this king who would come would come from the tribe of the firstborn, and so from Reuben. But actually, remember that the future for Reuben's tribe didn't actually look that bright. So from verse 4, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. So why doesn't the future look good? Well, it's linked to Reuben's sin. And actually, we've got no record of his repentance for that sin. 
And actually the same goes for Simeon and Levi. Not an amazing future for their tribes as a reference is made to their anger and cruelty, which presumably refers to the massacre they committed at Shechem. And so if we sort of work through the the order of the sons, well, we arrive at Judah. So he's kind of the firstborn in a sense in, in chronology if we exclude Reuben and Simeon and Levi, even though technically as 1 Chronicles 5 tells us, Joseph did end up being sort of classified as the firstborn. That's why his descendants got the double portion that we just looked at of the land. But still, with the, the three eldest disqualified, Judah comes next. And so it does make some sense that this long-promised king would come from that tribe. But actually, I think there's more to it as well. Let me suggest that there's something in Judah's past, something that Judah did that makes him an excellent choice to become the head of the tribe from which the king would come. And so what is that? Well, a bit of background to Judah. Remember, he's the one who suggested his brother Joseph be sold into slavery. Now, that's not great, even though it did stop his brothers from killing Joseph outright. But in yet another good news story, in yet another transformation story in Genesis, as we saw last week, some 20 years after that event, Judah actually offers himself in sacrifice for his younger brother, Benjamin. And he does it for the sake of his father. That's how much Judah had changed. And so as opposed to the first three brothers, Judah's story doesn't disqualify him from being the head of the tribe from which Jesus would come, but actually his past actions are actually quite appropriate, aren't they? Because actually what Judah did sounds a lot like what Jesus would do, because Jesus offered himself in sacrifice for his brothers. But more than that, Jesus actually did it. He swapped places with his brothers for the sake of his father. And so actually Judah now seems like an incredible choice to be the head of the tribe from which Jesus would come. And so chapter 49 builds on chapter 48 because while chapter 48 encouraged us to live in light of the promises of God, chapter 49 help us to see how God's promises will be fulfilled and actually ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So we come back to this question, what is it that you want for those you love? Uh, What words of wisdom, if you get the chance, will you pass on? Well, let me suggest that if you know the Lord Jesus if you trust the promises of God, you're not going to say to your kids or your grandkids or whoever it is to invest 30% of their income. Actually, you won't be telling them anything about what might get them ahead in this world. You'll be telling them about the promises of God. You'll be telling them about the Lord Jesus, how to secure their place in the world that is to come. You won't be thinking about this world at all. 
let me suggest. But that challenge is not just for our deathbed, it's actually for us today. Sometimes the, the clarity of being close to death gives us some real perspective. And maybe that's dawning on you this week. Maybe the, the death of Queen Elizabeth and something, a constant for many of in our lives is, is helping us to realise, well, what truly matters? That's what these chapters want us to do right now. To come to the realisation of what really matters. And it's not this world. It's the world to come and the promises of God. Let's pray. Father, may we live in light of your promises. May we encourage others to live in light of your promises. May we rejoice because of all of your promises and how they are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And knowing that, Father, help us to long for the world to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.